what the Buddha referred to as the gradual path. When he would teach the Dharma, he said that there's, uh, there are five uh, five conditions that have to be internally established before one should teach the Dharma. And um, so I thought I'd just read the five. The first one is that, that uh, I shall speak a graduated discourse. So it's a gradual, progressive discourse. I shall speak a discourse that is insightfully arranged. And that really describes the gradual path. The other three elements that he said were essential for teaching. I shall speak a discourse grounded on caring. I shall speak a discourse without motivation for personal gain. And I shall speak a discourse without disparaging myself or others. When the Buddha would show up in town, he, would, uh, he wouldn't start with meditation as a practice. He wouldn't lead with that. Although that's what, in the West, what we've grabbed onto. Most of us start, most of us come to the Buddha's path through meditation, isn't that? And then we, as we, uh, as our practice deepens, we start to explore other aspects of the teaching. But the Buddha didn't start with meditation. In fact, meditation came towards the very end of the teachings that he would give. And he describes the progress of his teachings in, a, in an account um, where he found himself in front of a lot of people, I'm always amazed because sometimes in the scriptures it'll say he was addressing 5,000 monks and I'm thinking, without a PA system? I <laughs> we can hardly manage in here without a PA system. Um, but I'll just read this section, it's from the Udana. He said, um, Then the Blessed One, having encompassed the awareness of the entire assembly with his awareness, asked himself, now, who here is capable of understanding the Dhamma? He saw Supabuddha the leper sitting in the assembly, and on seeing him, the thought occurred to him, this person here is capable of understanding the Dhamma. So, aiming at Supabuddha the leper, he gave a step-by-step -step talk. That is a talk on giving, a talk on virtue, a talk on heaven, he declared the drawbacks, degradation, and corruption of sensual passions and the rewards of renunciation. Then when he saw that Supabuddha the leper's mind was ready, malleable, free from hindrances, elated and bright, he then gave the Dhamma talk peculiar to awakened ones, that is, suffering, the origin of suffering, the cessation and the path to the cessation of suffering. And just as a clean cloth free of stains would properly absorb a dye in the same way in, in the same way as Supabuddha the leper was sitting in that very seat, the dustless, stainless Dhamma eye arose within him. Whatever is subject to arising is subject to passing away. And that's that's the phrase that occurs a lot in the scriptures, and then all all the people who were listening attain awakening and 
I always think maybe you had to be there. Um, uh, it wasn't in the. It's, it's not just in the text. In any case, the um, the Buddha's teaching would the Buddha would start by talking about giving, and it's interesting that it's translated as giving. We talk about. I'm, I'm going to walk through the, the progress uh, of these of these teachings. Uh, and he starts with with uh, generosity, with but with giving. We use the word dana, and we often translate it as generosity, and we understand it as generosity, but actually it's properly translated as giving. The word for generosity in Pali is chaga, C-A-G-A. And giving is a behavior. It's something you do. And as a behavior, it's something you can practice. And so the practice would be the practice of giving, giving away um, uh, material things. Generosity, more generally, is a, is a condition that's not that common. We like to think it is, but if you think a little bit about who you might know who is a generous person, uh, they're not, not too many. What, would it, what is it like to be around a generous person, to live with a generous person? Um, no. The qualities of, of generosity and, uh, and, and giving uh, is that are those qualities that, that you could, that you could um, could you be that someone who is that generous person? Not as a moral thing, but just is that something you're capable of doing? Um, Donna, as a practice, is, like I say, it's a behavior, it's an activity. Um, it's the kind of thing um, that we often have an impulse to give, and then we have a second thought. You may have noticed the second thoughts. Sharon Salzberg gave some, some advice that I've found incredibly helpful over the years. She said, you notice that first impulse of generosity and then the, the contraction that might follow, the second thought. And her suggestion is that unless that second thought is clearly a wisdom thought, which is uh, cautionary to just go ahead with, with the generous, uh, with the giving activity. So if you watch the, the, uh, the earthquake in Haiti and you say, I'm going to send my, all of my savings to Haiti, you might then have a, a second thought and say, well, okay, maybe not everything. But the idea would be to, to, to practice giving yourself permission to act on that, that generous impulse because each each one of those activities um, conditions the next and makes the next easier. Giving is, is, it is, it is the behavior of giving, and there can be a lot of different intentions behind giving. You know, you can give uh, out of kindness, you can give so that people notice your gift and think that you're a good giver. Um, <laughs> You can give out of ritual, um, out of perceived need. 
So there are a lot of different intentions that can lead to that particular activity, but it's what we're, what we're looking for, because the Buddhist teachings is the teachings to let go. We're looking to begin to let go of our holding on particularly to material things at first. And the, and the intention of the, the generous impulse, chaga, which is, gener- which is more directly translated as generosity, is something that we can cultivate. It's like when we do meta practice. We can say the phrases over and over, um, sometimes just mechanically say them, but we, over time, incline the heart and mind, and in the same with with generosity practice. And the idea behind um, generosity practice in this way is to to let go of the, the possessiveness in the heart, the possessiveness in regard to material things. When we when we own things, um, sometimes it's a, an issue of who owns what, but the things own us. The things don't care. Gil likes to say, you know, if we walk outside and, and put on somebody else's shoes and go home with them, um, the shoes don't care. You know, owner, <laughs> ownership of the shoes is something in our mind. It's something that we construct. And that doesn't mean that you don't necessarily recognize the conventional um, uh, patterns of of ownership, but that we don't cling to them, we don't hold them as ours, because we come to the world with nothing and we don't take anything with us. And in between, we we sort of clutch on to a lot of things. But the idea is for that to fall away, not to, not to push it away or suppress it, but, to, but it should fall away. The Buddha describes it as like a snake shedding its skin, just to, to let those impulses um, fall away, just to abandon them. In the same way that we no longer find attraction in the kinds of toys that, that enthralled us when we were eight, Um, we just allow the, the, uh, uh, the clutching and holding to fall away that impulse. The, the, the deeper, almost the deeper level is uh, of generosity practice. Uh, the Pali word is upadi, and it refers to letting go of everything that the heart holds, not just material things, but opinions, views, um, and there's a great story in the, in, uh, the canon where the, the Buddha comes to Anuruddha after he leaves the, the squabbling monks at Kosambi, and the monks were fighting over whether uh, a bowl of, a small bowl of water left in a latrine was an offense or not, and they were, you know, it is, it isn't, yes, no. And um, finally he couldn't get them to stop, so he left. And uh, he went to see his cousin, Anuruddha, who was living off in the forest somewhere with a few other uh, monks. And he said, 
Anna Ruta, how, how do you guys get along? And Anna Ruta said, we, we do pretty well. And we said, well, how do you do that? I just left these guys who were, you know, squabbling over a bowl of water in a latrine. And Anna Ruta <coughs> said, well, he said, I regard it as such a blessing to have these companions at the ho in the holy life that I say, why not set aside what I'm minded to do and do only what they're minded to do? And they feel the same. It's a pretty high bar, but it's a f kind of generosity, a giving of, um, a giving of, a giving up of your, even your attachment to your own preferences. You know, it's different even than, than it's, it's, that's distinct from something where we're talking about material. Um, material benefit. Um, it was a, any of you watching the, the HBO show uh, Trame on New Orleans? So I don't know when it's on because, you know, we use a TiVo, so I just, but I, I, my wife and I were watching the second episode the other night, last night, and um, it was just something just jumped out that was really huge for me. I have a young friend who's He's young, he's 40, and he's a, a saxophone player. And he's, he's quite good, he, and he has a couple of CDs that he's done on his own. And, but he's, he was saying, um, I just saw him recently, and he said, you know, in, when, you're, when you're gigging, you're playing one gig after another, or looking, because he said the saxophone becomes frosting. Uh, you know, a group would be a trio with the drums and, and piano and, and bass. And then the sax becomes frosting. And when times are tough, you know, the gig pays a certain amount, and it's split three ways. And to bring a sax player in means it's split four ways. So it's a little less for everyone else. Well, on the show, there was, um, it's, it's, the show is set in New Orleans post-Katrina and in the efforts to rebuild and around the culture of um, one of the poorer uh, parts of the city. And I, I just like watching these people who walk around with their instruments. That's all they have. They don't have, even have them in cases. And uh, the trombone player was, ran into a friend of his and said, you guys still got that gig down at Vaughn's? And the guy said, yeah, he said, why don't you come on down? and gig with us. And I thought, you know, just because I knew from David, I knew that um, that cost him. And not only did it cost him, but it, he was speaking for the other members of the group without even thinking about it. It cost them all. I thought, what a, what a, that's a kind of a generous impulse that it's not, um, it's not a material uh, thing directly, but it, but it comes out at that level of generosity and giving. Um, and I just found that uh, a striking example. We can find those opportunities in our lives all the time. I was, um, I can't even remember what the issue was, but I came across something and I wanted to 
share with my wife. And so I walked in and there she was sitting there on her computer doing this. And I was about to interrupt her and I thought, well, you know, I could just let her continue with her stuff and I'll bring this up later. You know, there's, a, there's a tendency you know, to claim your time, your space. But it's not necessary to do. And the practice, just the practice of that, each time you do that, can make it easier the next time to let go, which is what the Buddha's teachings are about. And if you let go of your views, your, under, your opinions, and credit the opinions of others, even those with whom you disagree, can be a kind of generosity as well. And letting go of views and opinions in that way is a way of is is a form of right view. It's a it's a form of of liberation, and and it seems to me uh, can take you quite a ways. Just with generosity practice itself, and it's what the Buddha led with in his teaching. And in in most of the the Southeast Asian countries where where lay people practice, they don't practice meditation. They start with generosity, and with the precepts. And sila, the precepts were the second, the second stage of the, of the, uh, the path. Sila, um, as, as a, a practice of, uh, as ethical practice, um, is a form of generosity itself. It's a form of giving uh, safety and reliability. To those we encounter, and I think sila actually sila the ethical practices make up three of the elements of the eightfold path. They're not trivial, and uh, in some ways, um, we spend a whole lot more time walking around and interacting with others than we do sitting on the cushion. And how much attention do we pay? to our, our speech and our behavior. I think that in some ways the, the, um, the practice of the precepts is to our walking around daily world the same way the breath is to our sitting on the cushion. And the five, <coughs> the, the precepts and, and uh, uh, generosity are the practices of, of lay people in most uh, most Asian countries. Ethical practice is not not where most of us start. Most of us don't come to the to the Dharma because we said, "Hey, precepts." <laughs> Anybody do that? Anybody find themselves attracted to? Uh, oh. And, and, and in, a, in a way, we're conditioned. You know, a lot of people find their way to the Dharma because of uh, disillusionment with uh, the religions, religious practices that we, we knew as when we were young. And we're incredibly conditioned to, to understand them as moral principles, you know, right and wrong. And... The Buddha was talking about them as practice, not as moral principles. If, if they're principles, then somebody's got to be keeping track. You have to have someone 
who's making the list and checking it twice. Um, they're, they're practices, and they aren't about right or wrong. But it seems to me that if, like um, with generosity, with dana as giving, or you know, with their, their, they have behavioral markers. So we, we, as a, as a, for the purposes of practice, we resolve to not take life. We resolve to not speak falsely. But if we don't speak falsely, it's not a, it's not a, a rule in that sense. I, I always, I think, always think of the Nazis knocking on the door and saying, "Is Anne Frank here?" And you say, "Got me. I can't tell a lie. She's behind the fake bookcase up in the attic." You know. Um, it's not an absolute right or wrong. It's transactional. It requires mindful attention to the situation. And for the five precepts that lay people take as a general rule, they're about not harming and just restraining the impulses that lead to the kind of mess that we often get ourselves that we often get ourselves in. Most people familiar with the with the five precepts, uh, they're they're, um, they're they're taken as as training principles, as practice principles. In the same way that you adopt the breath as the focus for your attention when you sit, we resolve not to take life, not to take what is not freely given, and that can include attention. Now, um, taking my wife's attention from her work, uh, I didn't even ask. I just thought, I'll deal with this later. But to, you know, to, to not take what's not freely given includes things other than, than just material things. The third precept is interesting because it's um, the Pali words kamesu refers to sensuality, not just sexuality. But you can, and it, it very soon after the Buddha's passing became uh, became uh, refraining from sexual misconduct, which I'm I'm never quite sure I know what that means. Uh, there's not a whole bright line there, but kamesu really refers to sensual misconduct, um, and it's much it's a much broader. Uh, much broader, but you can imagine um, a bunch of monks for whom you know young young men who've taken vows of celibacy to uh, to be more concerned about um, sexual misconduct, but sensual misconduct um, and then to not speak falsely, and then the last is is also confusing to me, and, and I, there's some ambiguity to it, to not uh, enga engage in the use of drugs or alcohol to the point of heedlessness or that cause heedlessness. And I'm thinking, how about just walking around in the world being he heedless? <laughs> um, you know, uh, how heedless do we get when we get angry at somebody who cuts us off on the freeway? Um, so I'm not, I'm not sure that drugs or alcohol have a have a you know, sole claim to heedlessness in our, in our lives. But the idea here is to restrain behaviors that 
uh, can be harmful and that cause regret and remorse afterwards. If you do the best you can in a particular situation, things can still go wrong. But you won't usually feel remorse. The Buddha described the, the benefits of uh, sila practice as the bliss of blamelessness. After the five precepts, there are another set of precepts uh, three or five that are that are taken, um, three of them that are taken by lay people frequently, and that have to do with um, their their practice rules that are taken on for the purpose of learning about our uh, our sensual preferences. So we the, these have to do with not eating afternoon so that we notice hunger and, and dealing with our, our preference for pleasant uh, physical feeling, uh, not to indulge in entertainment or partying, um, not to decorate oneself, ornament oneself, um, sleep, and sleeping on high beds, which I'm not quite sure. <laughs> Not sure about that one either. But they're about about restraining, you know, through adopting a rule of practice. Like when you when you focus on your breath, you start to see everything else in your mind. It holds it. it uh, and it's the same when you restrain. You start to when you restrain the impulses for sensual pleasure, sense pleasure, pleasant experience. And then for the monastics, there are a couple hundred more plus that are taken that regulate um, just every every aspect of your life. I mean, you, you hang your your robe on on a peg. The hem has to be facing the wall and not facing out. And you know, the, the the posture when you when you go to sleep. There's a whole variety of rules regulating the way you live your life. So you you are practicing abandoning your own preferences for doing things in a particular way. So we're letting go uh, in the same way as the, the generosity practice. The sila practice is a practice of, um, of letting go. Um, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm increasingly thinking that uh, that sila practice is as as important uh, as the meditation practice. Um, it's certainly if you if you actually resolve to watch your speech and actually do. I mean, because often what we do, maybe this is just me, say, yeah, okay, I'll practice it, and then the next thing you know, it's next week, <laughs> and we go, oh yeah, the precepts. Um, so we have the idea to practice them, but it's not so much the practicing. Um, but to work with one or two, and I guess the it's is it the first, it's the, second. the second Wednesday. the second Wednesday of the month. Um, this group has a, a, a starts at seven thirty. Starts at eight. It starts at eight. Um, there's a, a precept 
uh, support uh, group that meets. And um, you, and anybody can participate that and include some discussion of, of the practice and it, it enhances our awareness of precept practice. Uh, the bliss of blamelessness is the, the benefit of precept practice. And also it, it becomes a mindfulness practice and becomes an insight practice. <clears throat> when you become aware of the impulses that are to, well, when you're speaking, the impulses to inflate a story or to puff yourself up a little bit or, you know, the kinds of things that we do with our speech that are reflecting some internal intention. Um, and sometimes you just can't control it. It's, it's amazing. I was, I was standing at Starbucks um, last week. I was coming here and, and uh, trying to get my caf the caffeine going so that you know, uh, I would be awake by the time I arrived. And what was going on with the, with the people putting the coffee together was some, some people had ordered a whole bunch of cappuccinos, which apparently depend on a lot of foam. And it was taking the, the person just, it took five minutes to make three drinks with the foam. Not enough foam? Oh, we've got to heat the more milk, more of the foam. Put the, and I was just, uh, you know. And I thought, well, this is interesting practice. You know, I don't have to say anything. I couldn't control myself. <laughs> wasn't nasty. I just said, you know, this is, <laughs> these cappuccinos really, when, when you're in a hurry, the cappuccinos <laughs> And really get on your nerves, but you know. So you, we can't always. We can't always. But you, I sure noticed that. It just just jumped to my awareness. The tension, the physical, and and then telling me I don't have to say anything. And then, as she handed me the drink, I I lost it. <laughs> you know. But as a practice, it can be, it can be, it can serve as a mindfulness, as an inside practice as well, just to see that impulse, how strong that is. So as a way of reigning in the behavior. So the bliss of blamelessness has the benefit of the practice of the uh, uh, of the precepts. Not that things will always go right. You know, you can, if you're a surgeon and you take a patient. For surgery and things go badly, if you're doing the best you can and your intention is is pure, things happen in life, and and remorse doesn't appear. And then we've had we've all of us have experienced some degree or another the you know wishing that somebody will get theirs and then they do in a way that you go oh gee you feel guilty afterwards for for that wish. So so sila practice. Precept practice is about cultivating intention. It's about cultivating our intention. And when the intentions are the skillful or wholesome, when the intentions are uh, generosity instead of greed, when, when they're um, loving kindness instead of ill will, when they're compassionate instead of punishing, We feel that bliss. We then, 
those are the kinds of things that, that lead to the heaven realms. And the, the description of heaven is something that the Buddha um, that came in, in the gradual teaching after the, after the uh, discussion of, the, of, the, uh, of sila, of virtue. And the heaven realms are interesting. They're often taken literally. Uh, I know Bhikkhu Bodhi speaks of you know, the, the five different realms. There's the heaven realms and the animal realms and the hungry ghosts and the hell realms and the human realms. I guess those are five. And he regards them as literally there, although we don't, we don't perceive them with our particular set of senses. It's like you know, going out and turning on your radio and expecting it to tune in the BBC. It's on a different frequency, so we don't encounter them. So there are people who actually, and the tradition regards them uh, often as literal, but they can also be regarded just as mind states. You know, we've all been through um, you know, the, the hells of, of anger and, and, uh, uh, and rage and irritation and, and the, the pleasant realms as well. Physically, there's, you know, there's uh, the, the heaven realms. The heaven realms are the realms where the unpleasantness quotient is low. Maybe not entirely absent, um, depending on, your, on how you envision heaven, but where the unpleasantness quotient is low. You know, in terms of where we live, uh, Spirit Rock Marin County looks like the heaven realms in terms of the rest of the planet, most of the rest of the planet anyway. Um, just the unpleasantness quotient may not be zero, but it's, it's certainly lower than uh, for the people living in Port-au-Prince, that's for sure. Um, but the Buddhist said that there are, there are drawbacks to the to the uh, to the pleasant heavenly realms, living in the in the heavenly realms. A lot of us think that awakening means that it's going to be pleasant. You know, that and and the a lot of the the uh, benefit of spiritual practice includes relief from some of the kinds of um, suffering we inflict on ourselves, making things worse. But things, things change, and even, even the pleasant realms, the pleasant experience, will disappear. In the, in the traditional uh, renditions of the, the various uh, heaven realms, I, my understanding is that the, uh, the devas who live in the heaven realms, as their time in heaven comes to an end, they start to smell bad. And people don't hang out with them. And then they get reborn in another realm, maybe, maybe human, maybe one of the others. But, uh, but the karma that leads one to the, heaven, the heavenly realms, when it is spent, it's done. And nothing, you know, the heavens are not permanent. When, when we're experiencing the heaven, heavenly moments, we're, there's not a lot of 
uh, incentive to practice because things are going pretty well, we're pretty content. Which is why the Buddha said the human realms are the, are the most auspicious because there's just enough dukkha to keep prodding us to keep working at it. But the but the uh, the bliss of the, or the pleasantness of the heaven realms are not the goal themselves, because they, and yet we sure like them. That's why the teaching that followed the teaching of the uh, about heaven are the teachings of renunciation. And. Personally, I find the word um, as a translation of nekama as a, a pretty, it, I always think renunciation, there's some pushing away, renounce the devil, there's some of that in there too, isn't it? You know, but there's to renounce, to push away, so there's aversion in there. And the Buddha's not talking about aversion, he's talking just about letting go, abandoning. You know, and, and the metaphor, again, is as a snake sheds its, its worn-out skin, we just leave behind the clinging to the pleasant as well as to the unpleasant. Renunciation and abandon, abandonment um, is, the, is the escape from the suffering that comes with clinging to the pleasant experience and, and what we prefer. So he would go through, what did he say he would teach? <coughs> he would give the step-by-step -step instructions, a talk on giving, on virtue, a talk on heaven, he declared the drawbacks, uh, degradation and corruption of sensual passions, which basically means that they don't, they don't last, uh, no matter how wonderful they are. And it doesn't mean to not appreciate them and not enjoy pleasant experience when it's present. By all means, when it's pleasant, it's pleasant. But we can spoil even the most pleasant. I remember, um, and we can pollute it with, with craving and desire. You know, I, 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 uh, John Tehran talks about how he once was watching a sunset, and he, he uh, said, this is so beautiful, I need to get some, someone needs to see this. And, you know, so instead of, I had a similar experience, I built a fire once, and it was just beautiful. It was just great. But you know, they start and they look really great and then after a while they settle down and they look, well, this was just, it was just incredible. My wife was at the store shopping and I, I couldn't enjoy the fire because I wanted, I wanted it to stay like that so that, you know. So you can, you can pollute even a pleasant experience with your own craving. You know. And and the, the escape from that is, is, is renunciation. And then he saw that Supa Buddha leper's mind was ready, malleable, free from hindrance. That's where, where we are right now, right? More or less. <coughs> and then he gave the Dhamma talk on, that was peculiar to the awakened ones, which is the, the talk on the Four Noble Truths which came at, at the end. He didn't walk into town and start with the Four Noble Truths. And that first truth, 
But if satisfaction is an issue to you, you will be dissatisfied. That it just is built in. If satisfaction matters, you will be dissatisfied. It's the truth of, of dukkha. I, was, I really enjoyed Stephen Batchelor. I think I mentioned this last week. I really enjoyed Stephen Batchelor's um, presentation of the, of the Four Noble Truths because he, the way he presents, he says each of the truths conditions the next. So the task with the First Noble Truth is to see clearly the nature of our dissatisfaction. You know, often we just project it out on the world. We don't, we, th we sort of think, you know, once again, maybe this is just me, but check it out. We think, more or less, I'm okay, you know, we're okay. We're, but the world is really a mess. <laughs> you know, look at those people and those people and these conditions. My gosh, it's worse than ever. And actually, the world is just the way it is. And we're dissatisfied with it, but we project that out onto it. So we actually don't even see our own relationship, that, that dissatisfaction. We just don't even see that. It's like Ajahn Jumian talks about the moth and the flame. The moth is so enthralled with the light of the flame, everything else is dark. All it sees is the object of its desire. It doesn't even see its own compulsion to fly into it into the flame. So we don't see our dissatisfaction, even though it can be incredibly profound and very deep. Very deeply conditioned. Wanting what? Well, you know, we want things to be pleasant. We want to be something in the future, some way. Um, we think we're going to make ourselves happy by getting what we want. And we have our ideas about the way things should be, and that we cling to. And we actually identify with those. And then we look out and we say, things aren't the way they should be. What a mess. And then we, you know, we're, we're in the midst of dukkha. So with the first, the idea is with the first of the, uh, uh, of the first, first element of the, of the uh, Four Noble Truths, the first truth, when we see clearly the nature of our, of our dissatisfaction, then it's possible, it conditions our ability to see the origins of it in the kind of thirst, the kind of wanting, the kind of longing, if only X, and let X stand for just about everything, <laughs> almost anything. Um, and when we can see that impulse, the way that impulse arises, when we can see it clearly, then we can see the path to letting it go and to the cessation. Um, the Third Noble Truth, the, the conditioning of the Third Noble Truth is, is based on seeing, this is, this is um, Bachelor's little model, which I, I've been enjoying for the past few weeks. 
Uh, you know, nibbana, the third truth, the cessation, nibbana is a, is a verb, interestingly. It's an intransitive verb, so is samsara. Um, but it's often tra- treated as a thing, as some thing, as some mind state, as some quality, as, as, a, as if it were a noun. But it's something we do. It's, what, it's whatever we're doing when, we're not, when, when, it's, when what we're doing is not conditioned by greed, hatred, delusion, desire, aversion, and misunderstanding. You know, we, it's often talked about as the unconditioned, which sounds like a noun again. But it's, the, it's what we do that is not conditioned by, it's not a thing, it's not a separate thing and not an entity out there. It's not beyond our reach. Buddhadasa has a little piece called uh, Nibbana for Everyone. If you Google that, you'll, you'll come up with it. It's, all, it's, it's out there. Nibbana for Everyone. It says these moments show up more frequently than you would know because we're not really attentive to them. And part of the awakening moment is to know that you're awake. So, but the, the cessation happens even if we're not aware uh, of it. He said, without those moments, we would truly go nuts. And with the seeing of the, with, with the cessation of, of tanha, of the, of the thirsting, the wanting, the causes are dissatisfaction. We can enter the Eightfold Path. We can begin uh, the practice. Because it takes a little bit of renunciation to give up the impulse to make ourselves look good, particularly if it's not particularly justified, or to, to, take, to take what's not freely given, <clears throat> um, etc. And then as part of you know, the Buddha's, the, the summary of the Buddha's teaching, he summarizes it in the three, in three lines, I guess, in the Dhammapada, so the way it's translated usually is uh, avoid evil, um, practice the good, or make progress in the good, and cultivate the mind. I sort of understand a little bit differently. Don't make things worse. You know, don't make things worse through your intentional, through intentional action. Don't make things worse. Do what you can to make them better. And cultivate the mind so that you know the difference, so that you recognize the difference. <clears throat> and that's where the meditation, the three elements, the meditation elements come in, helping us see more clearly <clears throat> and understand more clearly and our understanding uh, the, first, the first two elements of the path, understanding and intention. Our intention always flows from understanding. You know, if you think that you're going to make yourself happy by chasing what you want, that's what you'll do. <clears throat> If you think that you'll make yourself uh, free by practicing restraint, then you're going to work on that. And so the Buddha would end the his uh, the, the gradual path came to an end with the teaching of the four noble truths, and frequently in the canon in the in the uh, scriptures. You know, the Buddha describes the awakening of a particular individual by saying, and, and 
he or she saw as it truly is, this is suffering. This is the origin of suffering. This is the cessation. And this is the path to the cessation. So that seeing the Four Noble Truths, understanding them and clearly comprehending them is the, um, the nature of, of the awakened state and to not get sucked in, you know, again. So it's interesting that, that we come to the Dharma ourselves, usually through meditation, and, and there's usually some underlying dissatisfaction that, that uh, motivates, you know, uh, maybe it's stress reduction, I'm too stressed, or, you know, maybe there's got to be something else, there's, you know, whatever, there's a, the, the longing underlying that. Uh, brings us the, the dissatisfaction underlying um, uh, our life, brings us to, to meditation. And the practice, the meditation practice becomes the center. And so was, I'm, I'm enjoying watching how uh, Western Buddhism is evolving. Um, we were talking about this earlier because, you know, a lot of the traditional, um, a lot of the traditional teachings are being abandoned or and and we're formulating our own you know Zen looks different than Theravada and it looks different than than Tibetan because of the culture in which they uh, the Dharma took root and it's looking a little different here too and I'm I'm enjoying it a lot Um, let me just invite some questions, because I've just been rattling on here pretty much non-stop uh, about the gradual path and uh, the way in which the Buddha presents, presented his teachings to lay people. We are lay people, uh, after all. Um, is the gradual path something that's out there, or is it just not uh, usually attended to? Generosity is really a huge part of it, too, I think. And in terms of letting go of the most intimately held preferences and opinions, um, seems to me that it can take you quite a ways towards, uh, towards freedom, towards complete freedom. It would be complete open-handedness, complete giving. Yeah? It seems to me that the gradual path is what we, most of us, ultimately come to, mm-hmm. whether we have intended that or not, or even know about that expression. Yeah. But I, too, am interested in what form Buddhism has in the West, uh-huh. and how that gradual path relates to it, mm-hmm. um, how to, to stay balanced and use it in the most positive way in this particular culture. Mm-hmm. It seems to be a challenge. Right. Well, you know, as we start to work with generosity or with giving and generosity as a practice and with the precepts as practice, in addition to our sitting, um, we, f- we can find that it, it changes the way we relate, um, changes our relationships with people and, and uh, um, 
So it will it'll find some changes just in our direct interactions. Um, I had a conversation with my granddaughter, who's eight. We were talking about whether exaggeration is lying. Um, it's an interesting conversation with an eight-year-old. Um, and so do you find yourself, as you become aware of, of the impulse behind exaggeration, do you find yourself giving that up, letting it go, um, and allowing your relationship to be less hyped? So I think you know we could we could see some significant behavioral stuff as well. Yeah. Because there's more emphasis on the now and being present. Yes. It, there seems to be this play between the rules and how individual they really are to this very moment, mm -hmm. and kind of awakening to that. What that means. And instead of instead of saying, well, the ends justify the means, and therefore, saying, well, let's take a look at what's going on. Mm -hmm in the present moment with my experience, with my, with, with the motivation, with my intention. Mm -hmm. um, because, the, because that becomes the end, mm -hmm. the, the purity of intention, mm -hmm. at least not making it worse. Uh, yeah? Seems like you two examples of controlling impulses of those Starbucks and your wife and um, you know how often those kinds of things happen in our life, and there's this part of the focus on ourselves of you know being able to get that comment out that you think you might feel better because it's just bubbling up inside the Starbucks, and really shifting the emphasis to how it affects the person who you're delivering it to, right? Like the employees at Starbucks and and the effect it had, you know. The, so to control it, not what it's doing for me, but what it's it, by controlling that impulse what I'm giving to the other person by not saying why. Right, yeah. I was, I was relieved that I, that I was just, uh, I was just observing when I made my comment. It wasn't, I wasn't saying, how come, da 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 it take forever. Right? Can't you keep that phone backed up on a thing on the back so you don't have to, and then we can get, <laughs> that's, always a, that's always a possibility. That, that comment of Anna Rudis about setting aside what, I might be minded to do and doing only what they're minded to do. That sets the bar pretty high, but, um, you know, I like to keep that in mind. It's, it's, it's helpful for me. Any other, uh, please? Uh, oh, recently, I heard a quote which I don't no, I, I can't remember it exactly, but the idea of it, and it's just been, it's, I find it pretty powerful. And so it just came up again. Uh, and it is something like this, and you, you'll probably recognize it, maybe you can even say who it comes from. Uh, when I look inside, I see that I am nothing, and that is wisdom. And when I look outside, I see that I am everything, and that is love. And between those two, my life turns. It came from uh, Nisargadatta Maharaj. Between 
yeah, between love and wisdom, between those poles, my life. I don't know the quote exactly either, but I know it came from him. Yeah. <clears throat> Jack cites it a lot. Um, and it's the middle path. Yeah, finding that balance and uh, and in relation to generosity, the simpler one becomes, and the less sort of focused on on what you need and how important your mm -hmm. interest and needs are, the more you can be uh, tuned in to what the needs are outside of you and that mm -hmm. you want to respond to. Well, practicing, practicing giving is, a, is really helpful. And you can, another, another, there are all kinds of little things. You can you know, take $5 and say, I'm going to look for someone to give this to, you know, or you can take a little Buddha statue that you know that you get from, and look for someone to give to share that with, to give that to. So you can practice. There are a lot of different ways to to structure a practice. Just little things like that. Um, which over time helps cultivate the, the impulse to generosity as well, which just feels way better. If you think of the times in your life that you feel most pleased with, um, there are probably moments of generosity. You know, there's a, there's a, a uh, section here which I'll never find, but the Buddha was talking about recalling uh, our moments, our virtuous moments, and how we tend to, in, in our culture, we tend to not like to talk about how we've done good things. You think of it as, as recalling, recalling our own virtues. It's from the Anguttara Nikaya. He says, he encourages the monks to recall your own virtues. He says, any time when a disciple of the Noble Ones is recollecting virtue, their mind is not overcome with passion, not overcome with aversion, not overcome with delusion. Their mind heads straight based on virtue, and when the mind is headed straight, the disciple of the Noble Ones gains a sense of goal. The idea is allow yourself to take pleasure in recalling what, what you've done that's, that's good, your virtues. I think that in some, some practices, people in Asia, people will, will uh, share stories of their generosity and take delight in what each of them has done and themselves as well. And we tend to have this, um, you know, I, I, I tend to think that it's part of the original sin stuff, which is very deep in the culture, not just in the church, but it's, but we think, you know, we think of ourselves as somehow befouled, and so we don't want to, you know, come off as holier than thou, or too good, or whatever, whereas the, because there's something innately wrong, whereas in, in the East, I guess, the idea is that we start pure, but there are defilements that visit and corrupt, and that our task is to see those clearly and just abandon them.
Well, I thank you for your attention. I like. I think in the in one of the churches they say go forth and sin no more, but we can go forth and cling no more. <laughs> thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.